Church History Matters, episode 18. And a half. Yeah. <laughs> Grace and peace to you, brothers and sisters. Welcome to another episode of Church History Matters. My name is Joseph Knowles. And I am Ruben Rosales. We are still here, despite the fact that it has been a long time uh, since you've heard from us. We're still here. Yes, we are still here. And we did not really do anything to commemorate our one-year anniversary of podcasting. I, I, is that a big deal or something? I don't know. I guess. That's kind of a big deal. I mean, I, people don't do things for a full year, usually. That's true, yeah. So we've kind of been in it for the long haul. But yeah, we passed... One year in October, so I started out talking about church history and the canons and Dort and what was all yeah. that, yeah. yeah. All that good, good stuff. So that was last October. And we've averaged, it, I mean, we're on, this is episode 18, so we've averaged at least one a month. At least one a month, and that was, I don't know what I think that's expert, an accomplishment. I think it is too. <laughs> I think it is too, absolutely. So happy one year to us. Um, maybe when we... Uh, Put this episode out on social media. You can drop and tell us what's been your favorite episode so far. And definitely do not lie and tell us that it was episode 17 because that was definitely oh, yeah. nobody's favorite episode. If you made it through that, first of all, I apologize. We are <laughs> very sorry. Yes, the audio, uh, I could not rescue it. It was, it was a mess. So... I think we will plan to do another episode yeah, on the topic of Finney. Yeah, yeah. At some point in, in the future, one that's actually you can listen to um, without wanting to stick a pencil in your ear or something. I don't know. Yeah. All right. But anyway, um, so we've got a, kind of a big topic for today. But before that, we want to go to This Week in Church History. <laughs> And Lord willing, this will episode will be released on November 18th, 2020. And we actually have an event that took place on November 18th. Um, and this was a document that was published on November 18th, 1302. So the very Thanks. beginning of the 14th century. Uh, the name of the document was Unum Sanctum, um, which is Latin, of course. And it was published by or promulgated by Pope Boniface VIII. And you'll understand why this is a significant document for church history, but it starts out by saying this, Urged by faith, we are obliged to believe and to maintain that the church is one, holy, Catholic, and also apostolic. So far, so good. Yeah. That's basically the uh, Apostles' Creed. Uh, and then it continues. We believe in her firmly, and we confess with simplicity that outside of her, there is neither salvation nor the remission of sins. May sounds a little bit more foreign to, to modern ears, um, unless but you're, also true. But also true. Yeah. Um, maybe chapter twenty-five, paragraph two of the Westminster Confession or, yeah. says something very similar. It says that outside of the church, there is no ordinary, ordinary. possibility of salvation. So important word there. Ordinary. Yes. So Westminster uh, qualifies that a little bit, but here's what. Here's why uh, we as Protestants are not on board with Unum Sanctum and Pope Boniface VIII. It's because the very last sentence of this, and I'm reading from NewAdvent.org, which is the Catholic Encyclopedia, says, Furthermore, 
We declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. Oh, oh no, Patrick. You you went way too far there. So um, here's the document that the Catholic Church would look at to say, outside of the church and outside of submission to the Bishop of Rome, you cannot be saved. Oh, that's so whack. Yeah. But it makes sense, right? Because they believe he's the vicar of Christ. Right. The, you know. Yeah. I mean, There's say, no we, salvation outside of Christ, and neither can there be outside of his vicar, I right. guess, according to the... Yeah. So if you take all of their doctrine of the church and doctrine of Christ and all that, it fits together in their yeah. system, but um, obviously it was Protestants reject various parts of that along the way. Now, I did find out that um, in some of the official versions of this, you know, documents that are hundreds of years old, that last sentence appears as like an annotation, like a marginal note. So it's possible that actually Pope Boniface VIII did not write that and that it was added later, Hmm. which would, that, that changes a lot because most of the document we could probably sign on to, but that very last one, obviously they go, uh, very, very, Popish, <laughs> yeah. Make you know that that's part of why some uh, historic confessions, you know, call him that antichrist, right? Because he is essentially saying you can't be saved unless you are subject to the Pope. Yep. So there you go. Um, that's Unum Sanctum, promulgated by Pope Boniface the Eighth, November eighteenth, thirteen o two, and that's what's happening this week in church history, and that has basically nothing at all to do <laughs> with what we're on the topic of the episode. So what are we talking about on this episode? Today we are going to talk about, uh, it's a question that I had a lot of when I was growing up as a Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. I really didn't understand. Uh, folks would tell me, hey, I go to this church or I go to that church. And, you know, if you grow up Roman Catholic, you pretty much know what it means mm-hmm. to be a Roman Catholic. Right. But if you ask every other person, like, well, what does it mean to be a Baptist, or what does it mean to be a Methodist? Mm-hmm. A lot of people start kind of getting a little fuzzy on that. Ah, uh, well, yeah. Yeah, so today we're going to discuss what is the Methodist Church, and uh, what are the origins? Right. What are its origins? Yeah. So and Hopefully we'll talk about the origins, and then a, a later episode discussed where it's come to. Yeah. Hopefully. So that, that's the idea, and I mean, maybe the first question we should start with is, initially, was it even proper to call it the Methodist Church. No. Why? Well, well, okay. (laughs) It's it's very interesting, right? So here's another question I always had as a kid. There was this, uh, I grew up in a mostly black neighborhood, and a lot of my friends would go to the the Methodist or the AME Church. The AME Church, right. And I remember... Seeing it, and it said the African Methodist Episcopalian Church. Right. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. <laughs> How in the world can it be Methodist and Episcopalian? Uh-huh, right. Well, we're going to talk about it. We're going to find out today. Yeah. And hopefully, if you're listening and you have also wondered that, you're going to find out today where, or maybe, maybe we'll get there. Right. We'll maybe see. Maybe we'll get there. We'll see. But we'll we're going to dig into this. Why could they call themselves Methodist and Episcopalian? We're going to touch on that a right. little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it wasn't a church. No, and, and at first that it'd be more correct to 
classified as the Methodist movement. Within the what church? Within the Church of England. So Ah. within the Anglican Church. Or in the American branch, Episcopalian. Right, exactly. Um, So John Wesley himself, well, well... talk more about him because you can't you can't talk about i mean he is the methodist church in a lot of ways Um, but he was an ordained uh minister in the church of england until the day of his death so right up till uh 1791 when he died at the very old age right and uh so he wanted to avoid any um even the appearance that they were kind of competing with the church of england so they would meet at different times Right. Um, and they were consciously choosing not to call themselves a church, but rather they had what they called Methodist societies. So they wouldn't plant churches. Right. They'd go and establish a society. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Wesleys uh, really are the, the kicking off point. So John right. Wesley, Just go Interesting ahead. part that I found out today when I was uh, doing some research <laughs> <laughs> uh, as, a, as a procrastinator, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I was doing research today. Uh, however, uh, apparently, this whole uh, label of being a Methodist wasn't even applied to John Wesley first. Mm-hmm. It was first applied to his brother, mm. who started in Oxford and uh, his holy club. Right. Right. So there's this. Okay. So let's backtrack a little bit here. Talk about who John and Charles Wesley are. Right. They're the two preacher kids of yeah. two out of, I believe, 19. 19 children, yes. Two out of 19 children uh, and only. Uh, I think nine of them died. Only ten lived. Yeah, to survive to adulthood. Yeah, yeah, which is wild. But yeah. uh, his his parent, uh, his was a pastor, Samuel mm-hmm. Samuel uh, Wesley, mm-hmm. was a very well known Anglican. Mm-hmm. Also, not so much liked. Some would say he was probably hated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, anyways, real quick, interesting story. Real quick, interesting story about him. Uh, he went away for some time, and during that time that he was away. His wife, Susanna, mm-hmm. would have Bible studies with her children. Right. And they, uh, Samuel being the good pastor that he is, he said, hey, I need someone to fill the pulpit while I'm gone. And so he did. He had somebody fill the pulpit. His congregation didn't like hearing whatever that guy was saying. <laughs> so what they started doing was many of the congregants stopped going to church altogether. Mm. And they started going to meet with Susanna during these times where she was doing Bible study with her children. Interesting. It is interesting when you look at the state of things today. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, Samuel, you know, he hears about this mm-hmm. as an Anglican uh, pastor. He calls he, he calls on his wife to, to stop. He's mm-hmm. like, well, essentially what she's doing, she's preaching to all these congregants. Right. And she's a woman. Yeah. She's not allowed. So he writes her this letter and he says, hey, woman, stop doing this. Yeah. You're not allowed to do this. Mm-hmm. So Susanna Wesley, being quite the firecracker that she is, and also a great influence on mm-hmm. Sean and Charles Wesley, oh, yes. uh, she said, look, if these people are starving, and if it is your desire that I stop, then I'll stop, but they're going to die mm. and go to hell. Mm. And uh, so he never, uh, story goes, he never he never made mention of it again, and they continued to meet there, and she continued to do what she was doing. But she was a great influence on John yeah. and Charles Wesley as they grew up. Oh yeah, instrumental. Yeah, and they would they would say that, um, you know, repeatedly uh, the influence of their mother on their um, on their upbringing, but also on their their spiritual growth as well. So, um, I mean, there have been books written about her. Yeah, and I believe she lived. She continued to live with John until her death. Wow. Um, so she went and lived there with him in their headquarters in London. 
um, much later. But yeah, they they uh, John and Charles Wesley were were two of those nineteen children. John was born in seventeen o three. Charles was the younger brother, born in seventeen o seven. But and like you alluded to earlier, both eventually would end up at Oxford, mm-hmm. and they started. And this is really the the beginning of the Methodist Church was the Wesleys meeting yeah. with a couple, just a handful of friends regularly. Now they were discussing divinity, but they were also discussing the classic literature that they studied there at Oxford. Right. Um, and yeah, they they picked up the name the Holy Club, and that was not a friendly nickname. <laughs> they were mocking them. Yeah. By calling them the Holy Club, and oh, you're those Methodist guys. You've got these set days every week that you go and and do this and do these readings and meet together. You're a bunch of jokers. What's yeah. wrong with you? It almost seemed like they're trying to call them. In in as I was, you know, again researching and, and you know learning about this stuff I, I another word rang into my mind mm-hmm. and that was zealot mm. and i think that was uh um i think that would probably be the word today that would be best used to describe them i mean obviously words change in their meanings it's, uh i'm not obviously they were using methodist and saying they were very methodic right and the word methodic today doesn't necessarily mean the same thing it meant back then right there's a little bit of a variant there uh, so I think zealot would be a good for our, our listeners to be able to understand exactly why the this name Methodist was not a good thing for them to be called, but actually kind of a, a what do you call it, uh, an insult mm-hmm. was would would make more sense. Yeah, is that they were really calling them though they're 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 zealots, they're fanatics. I think mm-hmm. is another word that was often often right. used for them. So they're there at Oxford in uh, 1728. John was ordained as a priest in the Church of England. And uh, not long after that, so the mid-1730s, both he and his brother Charles take a trip to what is then the colony of Georgia on basically a missionary journey. Missionary journey, yeah. And they they had intended possibly to take the gospel to the Native Americans. Uh, Mostly, I think what they ended up doing was preaching to people in and around Savannah, which is basically the only only city there. Yeah. Yeah. John returns to England... Uh, and in 1738, he describes what he calls his Aldersgate experience. Oh, hold on. You can't skip over the, the other part. What Which part did I skip? The the part about the Moravians. Oh, yes. The that's Moravians. Very, that's this important. Is, this Go is, ahead. It's extremely important. On his way to Georgia, he encounters a, a, the ship, encounters a very, very strong sea storm mm-hmm. in which the... Again, from my sources, were saying they said that the it broke the main mast. Mm. The main mast was broken. Here's all these people on this boat. They're thinking they're going to die, and they're kind of panicked. They're afraid. They're very fearful. And in this moment, Wesley looks. John Wesley looks over, and he sees these Moravian, um, Germ- these German Moravians, and they are peaceful. They're singing hymns. Mm-hmm. They're not afraid at all. And he right. was struck by that. Yeah, I mean, really, kind of unnerved him a little bit to see that look at this faith that these Moravian people had and uh, that moment stuck with him because it realized he realized how much different it was from his own experience Mm -hmm. and that kind of comes into play when he returns to England later on. Right. So, so that, go on. Yeah, sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to leave that out. But <laughs> I, I didn't put it on my notes, but yeah, that's a very important point. And I think it was such, the experience struck him so much that he, if I'm not mistaken, he would basically say, well, that was what made me realize that I was unconverted. Yes. And that's when he comes to what he calls his Aldersgate experience. He leaves this, um, again, it's the Moravian Brethren, and somebody was just reading through the preface oh, oh, oh. 
Hold on. Go ahead. Sorry. We, we forgot Let's get something part. else. Yeah, you did. I'm sorry. I didn't realize that's where you're at. Okay. So before he yeah. comes back, on, so he's a, he has a massive failure there mm. in Georgia, in the colony of Georgia. He he didn't see much success, and he ended up getting <laughs> he ended up getting put in jail. Oh. Yeah. Can't remember why he got put in jail. He ended up getting put in jail. He's an extreme failure at what he's doing. Um, oh, I remember what it was. He was he had it, it was a, a very young young manish thing to do. Right? <laughs> so John Wesley uh, meets a young woman there, and uh, he gets he gets charged with teaching her and discipling her and mm. raising her up right in, in the faith and mentoring her. And as he does, he grows greatly in his affection for her mm. to the point that he really is considering whether or not he should begin a relationship with her. But he doesn't. Mm. And when he doesn't, another young man came and wooed her as well. And so that got to the point where they announced they were going to get married. They become engaged. He's the minister at the place where they're going to receive communion. He refuses. Oh, no. The, the, the couple comes up and he says, no, I cannot. I will not. Gets thrown in jail. Oh, my. <laughs> Ends up leaving. He's just like, you know what? I can't deal with this. I'm going to go back to England. Goes wow. back to England. And so all of this is weighing in his mind, mm-hmm. right? He's like, he, he was trying to go and convert the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Completely failed there. Yeah. Begins to, you know, try to lead a church and, and fails there. Mm-hmm. And so he's going back to England as a complete failure. And this is when he's coming to his Aldersgate moment. But before yes. he gets, when he leaves the Moravians... One of the guys essentially tells him, uh, essentially, fake it till you make it. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. um, go and preach faith. The same Mm -hmm. faith that you saw in the Moravians. Go and preach that faith, that salvation. So he's like, just go preach it until you have it. Mm. That's what the Moravian guy tells him. So then he comes upon this Aldersgate moment where he hears the words of Mm -hmm. Martin Luther. Yes. And is converted. Right. And he, he leaves. And finally, we get to the part that I was trying to talk about. <laughs> Sorry. I was, Sorry. No, I was skipping ahead. That's important stuff. And it's not the John Wesley episode, but right. I mean, he's so central to the history of Methodism. You Absolutely. can't You can't escape talking about him. And he had the famous phrase as he describes it is he felt that his heart was strangely warmed. Um, and that's the, that's the time that he knew that he had been born again yeah. and he had been converted where all he's an ordained priest yeah. in the church of England. He's sent as a missionary to the native Americans and he's unconverted. That's an amazing thing. Um, but that's, there's more amazing stuff to come. So that's kind of the early days for the, the Wesleys. We hadn't talked much about Charles, but I've got some information on him later, but there's another very important figure in the history of Methodism um, and that's George Whitfield. So he's younger than both Woo! of the Wesleys. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he is uh, um, several years younger than both of the Wesleys. Again, he's part of a large family too. He's the seventh and youngest child to the parents who were innkeepers in yeah. Gloucester. So not the not the preacher's kid, um, but he also has um, ends up at Oxford eventually. He becomes part of the Holy Club. And while the brothers Wesley are away in Georgia preaching, he kind of comes to lead um, that group of believers there at Oxford. He uh, becomes a deacon in the Church of England and is eventually ordained himself. Um, And in 1738, he follows in the footsteps of the Wesleys and also makes a missionary journey uh, to the Georgia colony. That would be the first of many trips to the the British colonies in North America. Um, And he, of course, is one of the most famous preachers of 
the uh, Great Awakening there in the 1740s. Yeah, and, and an interesting thing about George Whitfield and, and John Wesley is both of them were such fiery and and interesting preachers. They were mm-hmm. they were they were very rigid in what they were preaching, and they wouldn't budge from it mm-hmm. to the point that many churches of England pastors were unwilling to have them come yes. preach in their pulpits. Yes, which led to a, another development in right, and that's I mean. That might be the most significant thing in the whole story is we might not be talking about these guys yeah. if they hadn't come back from Georgia and tried to start preaching England and found the doors yeah. shut to them and the pulpits closed. So what did they do instead? Well, they didn't stop preaching. Yeah, They went out and preached in the open air. They preached in fields. They preached in the streets. Wherever they could, wherever they could draw a crowd – they believed that they were called to proclaim the gospel, and they were going to do that, even if it wasn't in the parish church where they yep. might have otherwise wanted to do that. Yeah, so, and so you know, Wesley uh, actually got a letter from Whitfield to come and and witness what was happening. He was sitting here preaching, and there were thousands of people in the field, coal miners, regular old mm-hmm. you know blue collar workers that were hearing the gospel, and it was uh, it was amazing and very influential on John Wesley as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when we talk about, I mean, especially when you think of the Great Awakening um, and when you think of the beginnings of the Methodist movement, you think of that open-air preaching. But in a lot of ways, they were only doing what had already been going on. I mean, obviously, open-air preaching goes all the way back to the first century. Mm-hmm. Jesus was an open-air preacher, John the Baptist, all the apostles. That's what they were doing when they couldn't preach in the synagogue. Um, they were preaching the open air, but at kind of uh, contemporaries of Wesley and Whitfield were a handful of guys in Wales yeah. and are kind of developing along parallel tracks. Um, so these, again, are several guys that were, um, most of them ordained priests in the Church of England, but they're kind of doing the same thing. So you've got these parallel developments going on. Um, and eventually the work of those men, um, men like Howell Harris and Griffith Jones and uh, William Williams, not still not quite sure what his parents was were thinking. Was it William Williams or William Williamson? Oh, no, it was William Williams. It was William, yeah, yeah William Williams. Um, okay. Bill Williams. Yeah, <laughs> Bill Williams. What do you go by? I don't know what you go by. Um, but these, You could actually go by Willie Will. Willie Will. <laughs> Willie Will would be adequate. The, uh, Willie Will, the Calvinistic Methodist uh, rapper of Wales, I guess. That's another thing, right? We were doing we did an episode before, and it was like, how can you have a Calvinist Methodist, mm-hmm. Calvinistic Methodist? Like that doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, it's yeah. because it came from the Church of England, right? Which was, you know, came from that uh, mm-hmm. the Reformation, right? Out of the Reformed tradition, yeah. yeah. So if you read the thir- the thirty nine Articles of the Church of England, yeah, um, they're in that Reformed vein. I mean, they're not going to agree with the Dutch Reformed churches no. at every point. No, yeah. Um, but it's, it's their cousins at least. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's where, um, you, that led the, the preaching of those men in Wales led to the establishment of the Calvinistic Methodist church in much later in 1811. We're not even close to there yet. And still there is still there today as the Presbyterian church of Wales. Hmm. So if you don't know much about the Methodist church, <laughs> maybe you're very new and don't know anything about them at all. Methodist church are not Calvinists. The Methodist Church, I don't think, have ever been hmm. Calvinist. Uh, yeah, as a ch- as, as a, a church, church no, yeah. because they were they were going to adopt Wesley's theology, right. 
um, as a movement, I mean, you still had at the time there were some, yeah. George Whitfield yeah, being absolutely. the most prominent. I mean, he's at least as famous as John Wesley. Yeah, yeah. At the at the time, probably, I don't mean maybe more famous to some people, right. um, but there's actually a, f- uh, a letter that he wrote, and they were they were friends. Um, oh yeah. They were just not together on the whole yeah. Calvinism versus Arminianism thing. Um, so he writes him a le- uh, Whitfield writes John Wesley a lengthy letter kind of laying out his case for uh, a Calvinist uh, soteriology. And obviously he didn't, he didn't convince him. Soteriology being that which, the, the way, the study of how we are saved. There you go. Yes, thank you. Um, so he obviously didn't convince Wesley, but he thought it was important enough that he should try to yeah. convince his friend. This and they didn't break fellowship over this either. Right. Which is another important thing, right? So uh, it actually... There's two things that remind this these two gentlemen remind me of, uh, and the fact that they were not allowed to many pulpits reminds me of Leonard Ravenhill, mm. who would say, "I preach a lot of places once, yeah, and that's it. They don't ever get invited back." <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, uh, it reminds me of the relationship between uh, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, mm. mm-hmm. in that. Uh, you have these two brothers who are clearly not on the same page with, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. in a lot of different parts of their yeah. theology, and yet they had this great love for one another. Mm-hmm. That is, is, is something that I think is is often lacking in in many of our reformed circles. Is we have uh, brothers who are unwilling to call someone who doesn't believe in the reformed tradition a brother, mm-hmm. right? So that's yeah. that's an unfortunate development in our in our current era. Um, but these two were on. On, on opposing sides with regards to uh, free will versus uh, predestination. Mm-hmm. And and yet they were still very much uh, on fire for God. They acknowledged each other as brothers. And even there's a book, uh, or the letter, the letter that mm-hmm. Whitfield wrote is actually available. If you go to modernism.com, you mm-hmm. can actually download it and, and read it. And uh, I, I would recommend that to anyone. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't mean to, yeah, we're looking at the same notes. I didn't mean to throw you off by uh, <laughs> Sorry. Selena Hastings there. Um, but that's a name that and it kind of fits in the story at this point, but she lives a long time as well. So it's her dates are, I, I think. Identical, yeah. Yeah, I think they're identical. I hope I didn't copy that wrong. Uh, I believe she also lived from 1707 to 1791. So that's the same dates as John Wesley. I might have accidentally copied yeah. that. Oh, no, he was 1703. Ah. So they were born in different years, died in the same year. That's what it was. Um, but that's a name that might be, it's probably, it was unfamiliar to me, and it might be unfamiliar to a lot of the other listeners. Um, but this is She's some, the f- first owner. The first owner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. Um, Selena Hastings, Countess of Huntington. Yeah. Hun, 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 Huntingdon. Huntingdon. With, with a D, yeah, yes. Yeah, Huntingdon. Uh, which she could actually, when you were first telling me about her the other day, it reminded me of Phoebe mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, in, in some ways, absolutely. So she's born into a noble family. She marries Theophilus Hastings, the ninth Earl of Huntingdon. Sounds like a lot of privilege. Yes, a ton mm. of privilege and several tons of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she's uh, she was converted due, at least in part, to the preaching of George Whitfield. Nice. And it was said of her that Lord and Lady Huntington constantly attended wherever Whitfield preached. So they were uh, – I don't. Whitfield really was like the first celebrity preacher. <laughs> he would – I'm sure he would hate to be called that, but – he was famous in that yeah. day, so 
Um, they not that they latched onto him in a bad way, but they just uh, realized that you know his proclamation of the gospel wanted to be there yeah. uh, when it was heard. Um, so of course she and her husband very wealthy, um, but by all indications she was equally devout. It was also said of her wherever she went she took her religion with her, hmm. for her religion was a part of herself. And why this is significant for. Uh, the history of the Methodist movement is she would often host these dinner parties as rich people of the day were wont to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, With all their privilege and opulence. With all their privilege and opulence. <laughs> but then after dinner, um, when she would have men like the prime minister over mm-hmm. to dinner, um, George Whitfield would get up and preach to these guests. Awesome. The, and these are wealthy people who they never they would never have been caught (laughs) at a Methodist society meeting because that's like the unwashed masses. We don't mingle with those poor, dirty Methodist people, but we'll come over to the Countess of Hastings or the Countess of Huntington's house and listen to George Whitfield after the dinner party. Um, So George Whitfield actually becomes um, one of Selena Hastings' personal chaplains. Hmm. Um, And at the time, these noble people... They'd often hire a pastor or a preacher to come and, and do exactly the kind of thing that Whitfield did. Right. So that's one of the things that her wealth enabled her to do. But what also let her to do, uh, let her do was to um, contribute to the founding of the first Methodist theological college, um, Trevecca College, which was originally in Wales. Hmm. Um, and that followed after several Methodist students got <laughs> expelled from Oxford for being Methodists. Um, she also came to finance the building of over 60 chapels. Keep it in mind here that the, the Wesleys and the Methodists didn't want to call themselves a church, so they would have these chapels mm. where their society was just meet. There's another thing I want, I want to point out to, to the listeners is um, this this method, uh, methodical approach from the Methodists was, and, and because of John Wesley's preaching style mm-hmm. and his theological teaching, many would misunderstand them as preaching a works-based salvation mm-hmm. because their methodical approach involved a whole lot of rigid do's and don'ts. You must right. do this. You must not do that. You must, you know, uh, be in prayer and, mm-hmm. and, and be helping. And, and actually, I've heard a couple of people say this, uh, or is that the entire philosophy of the Methodist Church is to love God with all your being and love others. Like that was their, that's their mm-hmm. motto, right? Which is right. the two great commandments, which is right. not the gospel. That's the law. Right. We want to make sure our yeah. listeners understand that. That is not the gospel. That is the right. law. There's the law of God. The gospel comes in and says, you will fail in your trying to reach that goal. Mm-hmm. And it's okay because God is enough yeah. to, to, to meet that demand. He met that perfect, perfectly. He met the obedience of that law. He loved God with all his being he loved others the way he loved himself, and um, he is our perfect and holy sacrifice. He's our replacement. He took the sin that we have. He who knew no sin took all of our sins so that we could become that righteousness. Mm-hmm. So we get that righteousness. It's a free grace. It's it is given to us, and that was one of the things that was really heavily uh, preached by John Wesley was that it was a matter of free grace. Yeah, even though he got a little bit wrong. Right. He, yeah. did, he did preach the gospel right. So that's where, uh, let's see, what, what? oh, the chapels. Yeah, the so chapels. So they're, they're, they're building these chapels. Selena Hastings is paying for a lot of them. 
and having paid for the chapels, she also took it upon herself to hire the chaplains and to pay their salaries. And this was not, I mean, this is not something that was uncommon. People were rich. They'd have several houses. At each of those, they would have a chapel. Right. And in each of those, they would have a chaplain. Right. So it's not like she's doing something that's weird or eccentric. Right. I mean, it is a little bit eccentric, but not in that context. It wasn't that. It wasn't as weird as it sounds to us today, right. in other words. Well, I don't know. Some people probably wouldn't consider it weird at all. Some people <laughs> some people were just starting house churches in their own homes, you know. Right. I mean? It's like, <laughs> let's talk about ecclesiology. Maybe that's another thing. We yeah. Should, we yeah. <laughs> ecclesiology being that study of how the church is ordered, how God has structured it to mm -hmm. be ordered uh, and led. Um, but obviously, we'd have much in disagreement with the Methodists yeah. believe, as Baptists. Right. Well, and But they, we digress. Yeah. Well, they kind of... <laughs> They kind of created a. This was always the tension in the in the Methodist movement up until right. they did finally separate from the Church of England because Wesley, uh, John Wesley, was adamant that they were going to remain in the Church of England. We mm. were we are a reformist movement within the Church of England, and that's where we're going to stay. And uh, Charles Wesley really um, kept the pressure on him to do that up until you know they they kind of had a, a falling out. We'll t we can talk about that in just a minute or two or maybe on another episode, I yeah. don't know. But that, that was always the tension. So there yeah. are always uh, elements within Methodism that said, look, we need we, we ought to leave. We should not, we can't reform the Church of England. We need to get out. Right. Um, and they were probably right. <laughs> because it, lead, it leads to things like this, where you're having um, basically like parachurches. They would say, well, you have to go. We can't do communion you have to go to the the parish church in the Church of England to do that. Right. But everything else that a church does, we're going to do that. Right. And then that leads to the situation where you've got the Countess of Huntington hiring the pastors. Well, and I did also read somewhere else that they would do, as part of their, their holy club, they would have communion. Right. Which, and, again, we're, when we talk about the church order, that's that's a no-no. Right. <laughs> yeah, they, that's, that, that's for the church... Gathered, gathered as a corporate yeah. body and yeah. only for the church gathered as a corporate body. So, you know, to the extent that they were doing that, and I think that did happen in the early days. Um, I think they at least, again, there's, there's competing elements here. Right. Some of the Methodist ministers who were writing circuits, um, both in England and the United States, they would go ahead and, and observe communion because yeah. they thought, well, we are a church here. We are the church gathered. So let's go ahead. Right. And, um, I don't know. That's they should have. What they should have done is constituted themselves yeah. as independent churches, but they weren't ready to do that. And a large part of that was was John Wesley and Charles Wesley who wanted right. to stay in the Church of England. And then eventually, right there was the the whole I don't know a little thing called the what was it the Revolution? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, that played a little factor. A in minor, some as a well. minor matter. A little blip. Yeah. But anyhow, so. Uh... What? what let's see. We're seventeen forty-two. Oh, before that, we got to talk about the death of Miss Madame Huntington. Yes. Well, she doesn't die till much later. Well, I guess we'll finish finish talking about her. She dies in in seventeen ninety-one at the age of eighty-three. So yeah. after after the American Revolution. Yeah. Um, by the time she dies, she's given away a lot of her wealth, maybe a majority of it. She doesn't. She she could live like a very rich person, but she chooses not to. Yeah. So she's laboring for the revival of religion as she sees it, mostly behind the scenes. And that actually, when she died, she requested 
I don't want anyone to ever write a biography of me. Oh wow! I don't want I don't to think be. They ever did. No. Well, they somebody did eventually, <laughs> but it, it was ninety years before somebody did that. Now, right. obviously, she would have been well known by enough people. Oh, yeah. For what she was doing, that they could have written a biography of her, but they respected her wish that she wanted to do this for the advance of the gospel without mm. taking any recognition for herself. Right. And um, that's awesome. Being English as they were. Um, I don't know how devout King George the Third was. Um, being an American, I, well, I won't cast any aspersions on them that way. <laughs> but to have the King of England say, "I wish there was a Lady Huntington in every diocese in my kingdom," um, is pretty high praise. Yeah. Um, from the at least the titular head of the Church of England, oh, recognizing yeah, right. that yeah. she was doing. She was doing something that was that was good um, for the Lord there. So, all right. So again, if you if you're if you're jumping in and you haven't listened to any other episodes, you're not aware of the Church of England and how it was structured. Church of England was founded uh, after a certain king said, uh, "I want to get married." And uh, well, I want to I want to get divorced. Oh, a large part yeah, of it was a lot of it. I want to get divorced. I'm not getting a son, so I want to marry this other woman who yeah. I think will give me a son. Yeah. And the Pope's not going to do that because I'm on the Pope's bad side. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to start my own church. And we're going to call it the Church of England. <laughs> and the Church of England, uh, I will be the head of the church. There will be no Pope. The King will be the head of the church. Right. So that was that was, that was was why he was able to say in every – I wish I had one of those in every diocese in my kingdom because yeah. he was the head of the church. Right. For yep. that church denomination. Right. So we kind of we kind of jumped forward in time a little bit to talk about Selena Hastings, but – and we left off with the with the Wesleys and the main stream of the Methodist movement, um, but eventually they you know they can't be riding circuits to Wesleys all the time, so they established this headquarters in London, um, actually in 1742 by leasing an unused cannonball factory, and they would continue to call it the foundry. I believe at least some portion of the original building is still there in London. Oh, wow. But that kind of served as their headquarters. So after they went in and renovated it, they could accommodate about 1,500 people in the preaching uh, the preaching hall. And it was also where John Wesley lived with his mother and the Methodist traveling preachers after they got, you know, when they were riding their circuits and they stopped in London, they would go and there would be lodgings there for them so they don't have to rent out a room and that sort of thing. They also, uh, Bristol, which... Uh, if I'm not mistaken, that's where Charles Wesley ended up, um, was where they established what they called the New Room. But between the two of those things, they worked up a, you know, a significant debt to pay for these buildings. And they were wondering, how are they going to pay them off? Right. Well, there's one member of what they call the United Society. So it's basically like it's the Methodist Church without calling it the church. Right. And we only know him now as Captain Foy. Um, but he, he came up with a proposal for paying off this debt. He said, what we need to do is we're going to divide ourselves into these classes of 12 people, uh, 12 people each. Now meet throughout the week. Um, and within those classes, basically just divisions would be another way of saying it. One person would be appointed as kind of a lay leader. And each week it will be their responsibility to collect one penny from each of the 12 members each week. So every week... You're Methodist, you're going to come to your class, you're going to bring a penny, turn it over to your leader. And Captain Foy himself actually said, look, I will volunteer. You give me the the class with the poorest people. Yeah. And whatever they can't pay out of those 12 pennies each week, I will make up out of my own pocket. 
So he's putting his money where his mouth is, nice. and here's how we're going to do it. Um, and this is kind of like an 18th century small group ministry, a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, but membership in one of those classes was you had to do that before you could become part of one of the Methodist societies, which was, again, a church without calling it a church. Right. Um, but so that did help them uh, pay for some of those buildings. And the class system um, is still part of the Methodist church right up to today. So that's something that has stood the test of time, I guess. This uh, They give money that way too? That yeah, part say, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I remember them taking up offerings when I once visited a Methodist uh, church. They still, yeah. But know. this is like, I mean, it's like you're, you're like our. We have small groups, yeah, yeah, yeah at yeah. our church, and we go and we meet at somebody's house. Or if you get too big, like our group, you go and meet in the in the yard out of the church. Right. Um, but that's you know that has roots all the way back in the 18th century uh, with the Methodists. So it's not. It, it seems like it's a. Um, a church growth 21st century strategy right. thing where, you know, there's precedent for it almost 300 years ago, which is very interesting to me yeah. from a historical standpoint. Yeah. So that was another thing I wanted to point out about the Methodist uh, movement is that a lot of times they were, they were reaching out to people that were falling between the cracks mm-hmm. and yes. the, the, the African Americans that mm-hmm. were being brought over on slave ships mm-hmm. A lot of them were staunchly abolitionists. They anti-slavery. Um, a lot of them, mm-hmm. not all of them. Right. Gotta right. make sure we yes <laughs> make that plain. Um, but so it 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 reminds me a lot of a lot of the the ways in which good and godly brothers and sisters that we're going to see in heaven that they they see an area that needs attention. And, and they go and pursue trying to fix that, but then there's so much that gets left out. So yeah. much discipleship gets left out. Right. And and I, I don't want to, again, you don't want to say, you know, that was a bad thing because many souls rushed into the kingdom through mm-hmm. the works of John Wesley and his and the hymns of Charles Wesley. Mm-hmm. Have you gotten oh, yeah. to that yet? Yeah. But um, these guys did amazing work for the kingdom of God. And we still sing some of their their mm-hmm. hymns today. Even Baptists and Presbyterians yep. will sing their hymns. I'm willing to bet that if we flip to the back of our Trinity, <laughs> Trinity hymnal Baptist edition, there will there will be not very many people who are authors in the author index yeah. that have more hymns than Charles Wesley. Yeah, maybe like Isaac Watts, right, and one or two others. But Charles Wesley is right up there. Oh yeah, and they're ones that the churches still sing today. So that's a, that's a, you know a tremendous legacy. Absolutely, and kind of interesting that we, the Reformed Baptist Calvinist church can sing Charles Wesley's yeah. hymns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I've said that to people before. I said, you know, I would probably have more in common with, uh, you know, those old school Methodist mm-hmm. than, than your average run of the mill Baptist who goes to a church and doesn't really know what it means to be a Baptist. Right. Yeah. Um, That's kind of amazing. It is. Yeah. Remarkable. Right. But I've heard um, even more remarkable things. Yeah. Like, uh, that never mind we won't go there <laughs> uh but so we're almost to that point where we get to yeah we're almost halfway Methodist. through my yeah. notes <laughs> so let's i think i think it's be a good place to stop we'll yeah. stop and and say we'll come when we come back we can discuss the methodist church in america yeah. from the time it began in america to now yeah to 
where it's at now. So that's going to bring us up to the 1740s, 1750s. And just to give you an idea, the Holy Club started with like four people Yeah. in the 1730s. By the 1750s, awesome. there's approximately 10,000 people who oh are calling gosh. themselves Methodists. Now, that's not necessarily members of the societies, but right. people who were in some way connected with in one of these classes, going to a Methodist connection, which is also what they called their churches that are not really churches. Uh, chapels. Yeah, chapel, a connection, or connections were more like uh, networks. Okay. Like little local associations of chapels is, right. the, is the idea connection. that I, that I, like I that. There. I like that word, connection. Yeah, it connection. sounds a little bit, I don't know, hipsterish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you had Selena Hastings, the Countess yeah. of Huntington's connection, uh-huh. which existed for quite a while after her death, it, but it was built on that network of chapels that she had helped establish. But that's just shows the tremendous growth that had happened in that Methodist movement. And like right. you said, it's a lot of people who were not affiliated with any church before. Right. They weren't in the Church of England. They weren't attending the independent or congregational churches. They were just kind of out there, had no religious instruction whatsoever. Right. And um, here the, the Methodists are, are reaching out to these people and, and bringing them in. And bringing many into the kingdom, so it's yeah. really fascinating to me when I think about again. So you see, God can use and does use. Um, right, there's ordinary means, mm-hmm. and then he uses he uses extraordinary means. He right. ordains the, um, what do you call it? Uh, I forget how you say it. Uh, he ordains the things that happen, but he also ordains the means. Mm-hmm. Right, he yeah. is, his hand is at work in all of these different things. Right. Um, and speaking of, I hope, hopefully we'll get to talk about uh, this book that I'm reading right now that I've been reading for like months. <laughs> when we come to the next part, when we talk about a couple famous people who were Methodist and mm-hmm. uh, the rest of the rest of the history of the Methodist Church. This is a really fascinating history, and I think a lot of people, I think hope I hope a lot of people will find it interesting as well. Yeah, and uh, then we should probably also delve into a little bit more of the Arminianism. Yeah, it wouldn't uh, be good to talk about, because we we touched on the theology, but yeah. we didn't dive in too deep. Um, but yeah, we'll probably take a little more opportunity to talk about some of the theology. And, parse that yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. parse that. Uh, so I hope you'll join us again next time, and hopefully it won't be months before we get back to it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would like to get it done soon, but yeah. uh, we'll see. Thanks for joining us, and God bless you.